John chapter 12. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. We'll get you a Bible. John 12, Lord willing, we're going to finish this out today, verses 37 through 50. We did communion first because it'll be a few hours before we get to the agape feast. We get through all these verses. So chapter 12, verse 7, beginning. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. Just reading that verse, it seems hard to believe, doesn't it? Just saying those words seems hard to believe, that they saw these signs, and yet they didn't believe. How many of us have said, Lord, if we see a sign, that's all we need. We just need a sign. We'll believe. They had witnessed so many things, yet they still did not believe. And, and people will tell you, if there's a God, if there's truly a God, then he'll show me a sign. I need some kind of proof. I need to know that there's a God. I can't just take this on faith like you do. If there's a God, why is there so much sickness in the world? Why is there death? Why are there natural disasters? And the answers to those questions, of course, for us as believers, and sometimes I think we even ask that question, we even wonder that, is that there, we know there is a God, but man. You know, there, there's, you notice a difference in the expectancy there? When we say, but man, we, we normally have very low expectations as to what comes next, right? But when we say, but God, it changes everything. Because there is no limit. There is no expectations. With God, God can do anything. And through Him, we can do anything. But when we say, but man, who knows what follows next? Their expectations are so low. But man rebelled against God. And man brought sickness and death and destruction into this world, into the disasters that we see today. But God has offered us a way of salvation through His Son. So that when we leave this world, no matter how that happens, we will have life with Him forever. There's a man in the Bible who found that truth out just a little bit too late. The rich man. The rich man who asked Abraham if Abraham could send Lazarus to warn his brothers so that they didn't meet the same fate that he had met. And this was Abraham's response to him. He said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one, though one rise from the dead. Luke 16, 25-31 Even if they saw someone rise from the dead they would still not believe and of course the greatest miracle of all that Jesus did was the resurrection from the tomb which in itself is a sign isn't it the resurrection is a sign 
the scribes and the Pharisees had asked Jesus, We want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the sign that they asked for was the sign of the resurrection. That's what Jesus tells them. The sign that you're looking for, the sign that you asked for, will be the sign of my resurrection. Just as Jonah was three nights and three days in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the tomb. So what happened at the end of three days and three nights with Jonah? The whale spit him up on the, on the land, right? He was resurrected from his watery tomb. After three days and three nights exactly, just as Jesus said, he was resurrected from his earthly tomb. And I want to take a moment here, just a moment, to talk about the three nights, three days. Because some have said, because it's not a whole three days and three nights, that the, the resurrection account does not fit chronologically. In other words, Good Friday must have happened on Wednesday. Which throws every church's scheduling way off, doesn't it? But they get confused because they fail to take into account the use of ancient figures of speech. Around the year 100 A.D., a rabbi by the name of Eleazar ben Azare explained the ancient way of speaking this way. He said, A day and a night make a whole day, and a portion of a whole day is reckoned as a whole day. So the phrase three days and three nights is not necessarily a full 72-hour period, but it could include portions of those three days and three nights. So, yes, Good Friday did happen on Friday. But the resurrection was a sign, just as the miracles that Jesus did were a sign that he is the Messiah. He is God the Son. He is the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is 100% God, 100% man. He is the Mashiach Nagid. He is our Savior, the King. Signs. Everybody wants a sign. And signs in our life are useful, aren't they? I mean, they point us to things like there's an exit ahead. There's, uh, they point us to places of interest. We may need gas or, or a place that we're traveling to on vacation, a vacation spot, a fairground, a park, whatever it is. There's signs pointing us there. There's signs that point us to needed services like hotels and food and things like that. Signs also act as a warning for us, don't they? Like the speed limit signs that are posted all over the turnpikes. Now, I always believed that they were suggested numbers. But as a police officer pointed out to me once, those fees are not negotiable. Who knew? But there are signs that warn us all the time, signs that warn us to slow down, signs that warn us that there's a sharp curve ahead, signs that warn us that bridge may be slippery when wet, signs that warn us of deer crossings. And that I just can't figure out, because why they put these deer crossing signs in the worst possible places. Why would you want a deer to cross there? It's just, it's amazing. But signs aren't just posted signs, are they? Signs are things that we see in others and signs that we see in ourselves. There are signs that warn us, uh, the, the Internet, this is where I found this stuff, signs that warn us that there's a psychopath working in your workplace. Now, I would imagine that's the guy that throws the coffee maker across the room because it's not working anymore. That's a pretty good sign that you're working with a psychopath. There's signs that you're living in the wrong place. 
There are signs of potential health problems. There are signs if a girl or a guy likes us. And there are signs if they don't like us. And for most guys, that sign is when they come home and find all their stuff on the curb. Signs have become such a big part of our lives, and rightly so. I mean, God even uses signs. God used signs in the Old Testament. But the question for us is, does he use them today? And if so, what are the signs of God? So there's a couple places in the Old Testament, there's a lot of places in the Old Testament that God uses signs, but I'm just going to use a couple of them here this morning. First is Gideon. Now Gideon wanted to know if God was going to use him to save Israel, and so he asked God for a sign. He says, I'm going to put a fleece of wool out on a threshing floor, and if there's dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, and I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So the next morning, Gideon gets up, and guess what? There's dew on the fleece only, and the threshing floor is dry. Is that enough for Gideon? Would it be enough for you? Was it enough for him? Because he's still a little unsure if this is really God. And so he says, don't be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on the ground let there be dew. And once again, God answered Gideon and gave him the sign that he requested. God gave the servant of Abraham a sign. When Abraham was sent out, or um, Abraham's servant rather, was sent out to find a wife for Isaac. Abraham's servant prayed this to God. He said, O oh Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, Drink, and I will give your camels a drink, and I will also give your camels a drink, let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. So he's in effect asking God for a sign. If this happens, then I will know that this is you, and this is the wife for my master Abraham's son. And of course, when Rebecca came out to draw water, that's exactly what happened, and the servant knew that she was the one. In the New Testament, in Acts, after being told not to speak the name of Jesus, the disciples prayed for boldness. They said, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they actually prayed for God to show signs and wonders to the people. They prayed that it be done in Jesus' name, but they prayed that signs and wonders would occur among the people. And God used the healings among the people to help spread the message of the gospel. So in the Old Testament, God gave those a sign who asked for it. And in the New Testament, God used signs and wonders to actually help build the early church. Now the miracles and the signs of, in and of themselves couldn't save anyone, and they didn't save anyone. But they helped bring people to Christ. So, why weren't these signs adulterous as Jesus said, right? You ask for signs and you're an adulterous nation asking for signs, an adulterous generation rather, asking for signs and wonders. When Jesus said those words to the Pharisees, he was addressing their hardened hearts. Because adulterous also means idolatrous. It means faithlessness. 
And what they were saying, how they were speaking through from their heart, really, is, you're not God. We don't believe you're God. And if you are, then you need to show us. You need to give us some kind of proof. So idolatry in that idolatry period is like cheating on God, isn't it? Now, can you imagine cheating on your spouse and then saying to them after you've cheated on them, you don't love me. If you did love me, you'd prove it. You cheated on your spouse, but now they have to prove their love for you. How ridiculous is that? First of all, I wouldn't want to be standing five feet next to you if you said that. But this is exactly what Israel was doing. They were worshiping idols. They were cheating on God. And then they were asking God to show him his love for them. And so Jesus addresses their hardened heart. He says, your hearts have been hardened to God. And now you're asking God to show his love for you? That's exactly what the miracles and the signs and the wonders were there to do. To show God's love for the people. Even though they were worshiping idols, even though they weren't loving him, even though they weren't faithful, God still was faithful and loving and kind and true to show them his love for them through the signs and the wonders and the miracles, especially the resurrection. But right, even though one raised from the dead, they still do not believe. And they didn't believe because their heart was so hardened. They wouldn't believe it, even though it was right in front of them. So does God still use signs to speak to us today? Well, Jesus warned us that there would be signs that would point us to the end of time, right? There will be signs, Matthew 24. There will be signs that will indicate when that time is getting closer. And I believe that God still shows his children things through visions and dreams. I remember standing out here in the hallway when I first came here over seven years ago now. And this was just individual offices. Now, there's not many here today who know that or who remember. Paul does. Pete does, right? You remember when this was just offices in here. And this is where the children's rooms were, and the church office was all through here. None of this existed. Matter of fact, they met in one of the warehouses in the back here. And so I stood here one morning in, that, in, in among the offices, and the Lord gave me a vision that this would one day be the sanctuary. And I couldn't map it out, I couldn't figure it out, I didn't know exactly how that was going to work out, but it was only a few months later when that, in fact, was the case. This became the sanctuary, and what you see today became a reality. But, and I believe that God still uses dreams and visions to speak to his people. But for everyday living, I think what we see more of than signs and wonders, although God still, I believe God still uses them to speak to us, are answers to our prayers and confirmation to those answers. God uses, answers our prayer and then he confirms that answer so that we know that it's him. Just like the fleece with Gideon, he know, we know that it's him. You know, when I first came here, again, before I came here, and I knew the pulpit was open, and I, I prayed, Lord, I don't want to go to Calvary Chapel, Lehigh Valley, simply, at that time it was called Living Water, simply because there's an open pulpit. I want to go there because you're calling me there. So I need, I need to know, I need a, please give me a verse that I know that I know that I know. So I woke up the next morning, and some of you I've shared this story with before, and the Lord had put, they're like sheep without a shepherd on my heart. And so when I came that morning with my son Brian, no fewer than five people came up to either one of us and said those very same words. 
We have been like sheep without a shepherd for so long. And so I knew then that this was God's calling, that this is where God was leading me. And, and so in effect, he gave me a sign, didn't he? That confirmation of the prayer that, I, that he gave, that he answered, was my sign that, yes, this is where I've called you. This isn't just you. This isn't your flesh. This is me. And so we can consider the confirmation that God gives us as an answer to prayer as a sign from him that this is his will for our lives. And so knowing that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? He's the same yesterday as in the Old Testament times. He's the same today as in the, he's the, same as in the New Testament times and the same as tomorrow in the future. So I don't doubt that God still does things the same way. He still uses the same dreams and visions and signs to confirm to his followers, to, his, to the believers, that it is him working in our lives. But the key for us is to keep our hearts open to that to keep our hearts open to the will of God in our lives. Not harden them, not become dismissive, but be open and ready to act in accordance with God's will for us. Amen? Verse 38, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So John's quoting Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13 here. And Isaiah has been given a glimpse of heaven. He's been shown the glory of heaven. And he sees God sitting on a throne. And so Isaiah immediately knows that he's not worthy. He's not worthy to be in the presence of God. And he cries out, I'm a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. And a seraphim takes a burning coal from the altar, and he touches the lips of Isaiah with the coal. And then Isaiah says, when the Lord rather says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, after he's been cleansed, he says, Here I am, send me. So God sent Isaiah out with a message for the people. God said this to Isaiah. He said, Go tell this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. So Isaiah was shown at that time the pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ sitting on a throne. And how do we know that? Because John says that right here, doesn't he? He said, Isaiah saw his, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. Isaiah knew before he could be in the presence of a holy God that he had to be cleansed. He wasn't worthy. He had to repent. And by admitting that he was a man of unclean lips, he's admitting that he's a sinner. And so when the angel touches his lips with that coal, he's cleansed of that sin. And then he's ready to go. He's ready to go out among the people and deliver this message from God. A message from God, from the very beginning, God tells them, they're not going to receive. They're, you're going to stand at that pulpit every Sunday, Isaiah, and you're going to give this message, and no one's going to believe it. No one's going to receive it. No one's going to be changed by it. They're going to reject it. They're not going to listen to you. And so Isaiah asked what any of us would ask. Well, how long do I have to do that, Lord? 
That's pretty discouraging. How long do I have to preach that message? Why don't you let me not talk about sin for a couple of weeks and see how the church grows? And so God tells them that you will speak it until the end, until destruction comes upon this city. And of course, that came in the form of the nation Babylon. So John quotes the scripture because he sees the same thing happening in Israel. Jesus, the Son of God, has come to deliver a message from God. And that message is, and always has been, repent. Turn from your sin and turn to me. Turn from your sin and your sin will be cleansed. It will be forgiven. That's the message. But the message was met with rejection. They refused to see. They refused to hear. They refused because their heart was hardened. And as a result, as a result of that, their heart remained hardened to the truth. And so, as a result of that, they would remain not healed. They would remain unsaved. God didn't cause their hearts to be hardened. Their hearts were already hardened, just like Pharaoh's heart was hardened. They had already chosen, they had already decided to reject Jesus and his message. So their eyes would remain blind. Their ears would remain stopped up. Their hearts would remain hardened. And it's a clear message in this for us that who we have repented and turned from our sin and turned to our Lord and been cleansed from our sin, we also have a message from God to deliver to the people of this world, don't we? A message that is oftentimes rejected, isn't it? A message that people turn a deaf ear to, a message that people close their hearts to. And that seems to be getting more and more and more the way it is, right? It's becoming harder and harder and harder to reach people with the gospel message. So how long are we to do that? How long are we to preach this unpopular message of Jesus Christ and salvation and He is the only way? He is the only truth. He is the only way to heaven. How long are we to preach that gospel message? For the rest of our lives. Until we take our last breath. That's how long. In our discipleship home group yesterday, or our men's discipleship group rather, we were, um, no, I'm sorry, it was at our discipleship home group on Tuesday night that we played a recording of a man from George Street. George Street in Australia. I don't know if any of you have ever heard it. But it was an amazing, amazing um, message. And I'm not going to play it here. If you want to listen to it in its entirety, just Google uh, Witnessing on George Street. It's an amazing story. But it's about a preacher that travels around to all different places. And as he preaches, he always runs into someone who says they come to know the Lord because of a man on George Street. And this man from George Street had a simple message, a very simple witnessing message. He said to them, if you died tonight, where would you go? Heaven or hell? That was his message. That was the question he asked. And so the story is based on a real-life man from George Street. And over the years, he had witnessed to thousands, tens of thousands of people with that very simple message. It's estimated that over 100,000 people came to know the Lord because of that simple line. But what I found most intriguing about that story is that this man from George Street never actually led anyone, on the street at least, to Christ. He never prayed with anyone to accept Jesus. He planted many, 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 many seeds, but in most of those cases he did not get an opportunity to see that blossom into a new life in Christ. And it wasn't until the very end of his life that this preacher finally got to meet the man from George Street. 
And he finally got to tell him about all the lives that he had touched over the years with that simple line. And he finally got to tell the man from George Street that he had touched, oh, I mean, he had touched over 100,000 lives. And he found out that the man from George Street had committed his life to the Lord and said to the Lord, I will witness to 10 people a day for the rest of my life. And when you, when you do the math, it comes out to over 100,000 people. And it really doesn't take much more than that for us, does it? To make a commitment to the Lord to witness to one person a day, one person a week, one person a month. And how much of a difference that would make. To just ask a simple question like, if you died tonight, where would you go? Heaven or hell? You have to believe that, as a matter of fact, if you do the math, 30 years at 10 people a day, 365 people, it comes to like 109,000 people. And that's just the people who he witnessed to, and it may have been much more than that. This is probably a conservative figure. But of all the people that came to know the Lord through that, and all the people that they witnessed that came to know the Lord through him, how many people rejected that question? How many people heard what he said and failed to repent, failed to turn to Christ, failed to even ponder the consequences of that question. How many thousands rejected that? How many walked away with their eyes and their ears and their hearts closed to even the thought of eternity? Yet the man from George Street never considered that, never thought of that. He just faithfully kept on witnessing week after week after month after year until he became too weak to do it anymore. Jesus never asked us to save anyone. Jesus didn't say go have a crusade. Jesus didn't say go have a tent revival, although there's nothing wrong with those things. But I think the problem with crusades and revivals is that it makes us lazy witnesses. We adopt the idea that it's someone else's responsibility to reach the lost. You know, it's great that Greg Laurie has a, a, a crusade and hundreds of thousands of people come and tens of thousands of people get saved. But aren't we all called to do that? Aren't we all called to be an evangelist? Aren't we all called to share the gospel message? Jesus gave, I believe, one of the most important set of instructions to his disciples just before he left the earth. Knowing that he would not see them again on this earth, he gave them these instructions. He said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. His last words to his disciples, how many in here are a disciple of Jesus Christ? And before he left this earth was spread the gospel message. Be a witness. Tell the world about me. You do the work of the evangelist. It's all of our responsibility. And if we simply ask the question, it's such, a, it's such an icebreaker, isn't it? If you died tonight, where would you go? Heaven or hell? It opens the door, doesn't it? It opens, it gives us a way in to have a conversation about Jesus Christ. And if, it, if they reject it, if they walk away from it, if they, they don't want any part of it, if they turn a deaf ear to it, you've at least, if even just for a moment, given them pause to think about, at least think about eternity and their eternal destination. Amen? Nevertheless, verse 42, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, 
lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So in spite of the miracles, in spite of the fulfilled prophecies, many refused to believe. But there were some, some among the religious leaders, who did believe, but they were secret agent Christians. Do you know that there was a group of secret agent Christians? I don't know which one's worse. Not believing or believing and keeping it a secret. They believed Jesus was the Messiah. But because of their fear of the religious leaders, they kept that belief to themselves. They kept it hidden. Their fear was, of course, being put out of the synagogue. Losing all their rights and privileges. That's like saying, I want to follow Jesus. I believe in Jesus as long as it doesn't cost me anything. And there are many today, more than you would think, who say, or will talk rather, engage in a conversation about God all day long. But as soon as you mention the name of Jesus, the conversation kind of gets strange, doesn't it? It changes. They don't longer want to be part of a conversation that's talking about the name of Jesus Christ. Because they have no problem confessing the name of God but Jesus, Jesus, he's just a little too controversial for me. To talk about Jesus may draw un unwanted attention, right? It may cause people to look at me differently. It may cause people to avoid me altogether or label me as some kind of nut or Jesus freak, right? I mean, uh, God bless Chuck Pinto, the man who witnessed to me at my job. God bless him. Because he does not know today what I do with, you know what the Lord has blessed me to do and the people that, that I get to talk to every single week with the word of God he doesn't know that at the time he was witnessing to me and if I saw him coming this way I went that way I did not want to hear it but he was faithful God bless him Jesus said everyone who confesses me before men I will confess him before my father who is in heaven Anyone who publicly acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, Jesus will publicly acknowledge us before his Father in heaven. Did you know that? That's why we ask people to publicly pray, to stand up and publicly give their life to Christ, to confess before men Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And so as you're standing before God in the presence of man and you're confessing Christ, you're being saved because the Bible says call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved, right? But you are also publicly acknowledging Jesus Christ. And as, as your name, as you're pronouncing and confessing the name of Jesus Christ in front of man, guess what? Jesus is speaking your name in heaven in front of his Father. How amazing is that? Jesus is like, yeah, it's Alan. I know it's hard to believe that, but he's with us. He's one of us. Jesus acknowledges that we belong to him. But to claim to be a believer in secret, that just doesn't make any sense, does it? There's no groups out there called undercover Christians. Well, I think there are, but they just don't call themselves that. Because it goes against what being a disciple of Jesus Christ even means, doesn't it? Jesus said you're to be a witness to me. Witness means you tell others what you see. You tell others what you've heard. You tell others what you've experienced. You can't do that. That's impossible to do if you're unwilling to do that in public. 
if you're a secret agent Christian. You know, there's an old saying that goes like this, if you were arrested tomorrow on charges of being a Christian, would they have enough evidence to convict you? If detectives came to your house with a search warrant trying to find evidence that you were a Christian, what would they find? Would they be able to find enough evidence to convict you? You see, we confess Jesus with more than just our words. Amen? Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and he who sees me sees him who sent me. <clears throat> Jesus cries out. And that means he raised the tone of his voice. He's kind of shouting now. He's trying to get their attention. You know when I call Oliver's name sometimes when he, he's doing something he's not supposed to be doing. And as I call his name to get on the stop, he just keeps doing whatever it is that he's doing. Now, it's either that he didn't hear me or that he chooses not to hear me, which I think the latter is probably the case. So I call his name again, and he still ignores me. And then I raise the tone of my voice, Oliver! And that gets his attention. And I think that's what Jesus does here. He raises the tone of his voice to get their attention. He doesn't want them to miss what he's about to say. And as a matter of fact, as we go through John's Gospel, this is the last time that Jesus will address people in this way. The next few chapters that we deal with are Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure. So Jesus wants to make sure that they hear this, that they get it. And what he says to them is as irrelevant today as it was when he said it. He says, you have no problems confessing the name of God, my Father. Well, God the Father and God the Son are one. If you believe in me, you believe in him. If you deny me, you deny him. You can't have one without the other. And that had to come as a shock to them. Jesus said, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So Jesus came as a light to shed a light on the disbelief of the people, that those walking in darkness, the darkness of unbelief, can now walk in the light of belief. And listen very carefully to the words of Jesus because they reveal the heart of our God, of God the Father to us. If anyone hears what I have to, what I have to say and does not believe, I won't judge them. Jesus doesn't judge those who reject him. He gives them a chance. And he gives them another chance, and another chance, and another chance to keep hearing the truth. The sad truth about that, however, is that the more you reject Him, the harder your heart becomes, and the harder and the harder, until one day you're not even able to hear the truth anymore. Your heart has become so hardened. But the Lord gives us as much time and as much space as we need, and as many times as we need to hear the truth, so that even with our very last breath, if we call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. And I remember a Catholic nun that I had at St. Catherine's. Her name was Sister Mary Margaret. I know, right? I mean, it seems like every nun's name is Sister Mary Margaret. And although I didn't understand her words then, I can appreciate them now because I remember her telling us that if you don't believe and you were involved in an accident and you only had moments to live 
And I remember this story. I can't remember what I ate for lunch last yesterday, but I remember this story from years ago. That if you confess the Lord, if you call upon His name, you right up until the very last minute, you would be saved. You could be saved. And I didn't pick up on it at the time, but as I look back on it now, she never mentioned the priest or confession or any of that. It was like she was saying, like she knew something that she was saying something she wasn't supposed to be saying. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now she left the church not long after that, and I wonder to this day if that she had, had given up on the traditions of religion and traded that in for a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that was the case. Jesus didn't come to judge the world the first time he came. Because if he had, he wouldn't have had to come in, a pre, in, a, in an incarnate form. He could have come in all his glory to judge, to judge mankind. But in his mercy and his grace, he's given the world time. Time to come to the saving knowledge of the truth. Time right up until we draw our last breath to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But if you die in your sin, if you die in your unbelief, if you die without calling upon the name of the Lord and take your last breath, you die in your sins. And then there is no second chance after that. Because our belief, our faith is what saves us. And if you die in your sins, then you will face the judgment and the wrath of God for your sin. Jesus didn't come in secret. He, doesn't, he didn't leave behind secret documents that only his followers had access to. He came and very publicly announced who he was and the reason that he was here. He came and very publicly told the people to confess their sins, to repent of their sins and turn to him. He very publicly told people who he was. He shone a light in the darkness. He preached. He taught. He gave examples. He lived the word that he taught. And he cried out. And yet there were many, many who chose the darkness over the light. And still, still he didn't come to judge them. He gave them time. He gave them space. He showed them grace. But the clock is ticking. Because although we have until our last breath to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, no one knows when that will happen, do we? One of the most heart-wrenching counseling situations I was ever involved in was a woman who had lost her husband suddenly. And she was devastated because she had witnessed to him constantly over the years. And one day she had left the house to go shopping and when she came home she found him dead on the floor of a heart attack. And so she was distraught over this because she didn't know if he was in heaven. She believed that he wasn't because he had never accepted Christ. Never during her witnessing to him anyway. And the only words that I could comfort her with was this that he knew the truth. He had heard the gospel because she was faithful to preach it to him. He had heard the name of Jesus Christ. He knew to call upon the name of Jesus. And in his final moments of life, before he took his last breath, we don't know if he called upon the name of the Lord and was saved. And I know it wasn't much, but it seemed to give her hope that he may have been saved before he took his last breath. But why wait? Why wait? Shout the name of Jesus Christ with every breath that's in our lungs right now and continue to confess Him until the day we do breathe our last breath. He who rejects me, Jesus said, and does not receive my words has 
that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. <coughs> For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. In John chapter 6, verse 66, and remember I said that I don't believe that's a coincidence. After hearing the words of Jesus, many of the disciples found the words to be hard. And so they left and followed him no more. John 6, 6, 6. Because if you're not following Jesus... You're following the other guy. Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Do you also want to go away? In Jersey, that means don't let the door hit you on the way out. This is it for you. This is your out. If my words are too hard to follow, if the way to salvation is too difficult for you, then here's your opportunity to get out. You don't have to waste another day following me. But Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Who else has the words of eternal life? Who else leads us to the Father in heaven? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. So even, if through your, even, if the, even though your words can be hard, is what Peter's really saying, even though the path we take to follow you may be difficult, for us as believers, your followers... There is no other way. There is no other name by which we're saved. You're it. You're the only one, Jesus. You're the only one who has the words of eternal life. Not Buddha, not Joseph Smith, not Muhammad, not Charles Russell. You, Jesus, only you. Why? Because if you go to the, the tomb of any one of those men that I just mentioned, you're going to find it quite occupied. But if you go to the tomb of Jesus, it's empty and has been since he walked out of it three days after his death on the cross. Only he has the words of life because he is the only one who died for our sins and rose from the tomb to give us eternal life. So why wait? Don't wait for your last breath to declare the Lord Jesus Christ Lord of your life. Confess Jesus with your mouth and you will be saved and spend the rest of the new life in him confessing him to the rest of the world. Give them the same hope that's inside of you. Tell them the same promises that have been given to us. Because no one else can make those claims. No one else can make that promise except Jesus Christ who made those promises and gave those promises to us and then confirmed that those promises are true and steadfast. Amen? So I'm going to ask this morning if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you would stand up right where you're at, just stand up and confess Him before our Father in Heaven, and He, confess Him before man, and He will confess you before our Father in Heaven. If there's anyone here,